0: All right. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome, TLC. Welcome, welcome, everybody. It's good to see you guys. Hope you guys are doing well. Hope you guys are enjoying uh, your Christmas uh, December month. Uh, Good stuff. Good to see you guys. Hey, my name is Tony, uh, pastor here at TLC. If you guys did not know that, welcome. We would love to have you guys. Glad you guys are here worshiping with us. You actually are in luck because this is the last message on our Rhythms with Relationship series. Uh, Yeah, it is. As we have finished the rhythms, Lord have mercy. We have gone through the rhythms of uh, this year. And this is the last message, okay. And, you know, in in this Advent season, this is a season where we celebrate the, the beautiful picture of God becoming man. Jesus Christ, a baby in a manger in a small town of Bethlehem. We wanted to end the year just reminding ourselves of this commitment that God made to us. This commitment that he was willing to go the distance, take the steps to bring salvation into our world. And so uh, we wanted to focus uh, this, this um, final series on setting the stage to prepare our hearts to be accountable to take the next steps so that we ourselves can be committed to Christ and to the work that he is doing here in this world, okay. And that, that, that comes through the idea of being members here at TLC, right? This series was actually uniquely designed uh, by Paul, Kevin, and I. Uh, we, we sat down and we talked about like, you know, look, either we teach the whole class again for like, you know, five weeks or we just make it into five messages, right? What well, we're sharing with you guys along the way, this picture of what it means to be a member here at TLC, what it means to have a relationship here. And we talked about knowing God's relationship to you, knowing who God is. In relationship to you what he's done for you the distance that he would want to go through for you this unconditional unrelenting pursuit of you we talked about and then Kevin talked about uh, our relationship to God that is not just about saying I'm sorry to God it's not just saying with your lips forgive me but it is a, uh, a godly sorrow a repentance that seeks to change and grow right these are, the, these are the types of relationship aspects we need if we're going to move to be a, be, uh, to be a body, a family, taking the steps in our Christian life. You know, and I also talked about the discipline of growing in spiritual maturity, you know, that you can't just know about God, but there's a spiritual maturity that leads you to grow, to hunger, to want righteousness, to discipline yourself, to make yourself more and more like the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ And as you mature, the scripture tells us there is a way in which we interact with one another. Whether you're new in the faith, whether you're mature in the faith, whether you're growing in the faith, whether you're struggling in the faith, there is a way in which the body of God interacts, engage in each other, the way we speak to each other, the way we grow in knowing what's going on with one another, the way we grow in love for each other. These are the aspects of what it means to be a family of God, to be this local body pursuing the commitment of God's kingdom, all right? And last week, Pastor um, Pastor David, he talked about what the leadership of deacons and elders, uh, as well as taking the communion, how those elements in the church body helps create unity together with Christ, okay? If you guys were there for that, praise the Lord. We were, most of the leaders were out that weekend. Uh, we were preparing for next year as we were preparing for uh, planning for that stuff, but we, d- we thank you guys for holding down the fort, those of you guys who are here doing that, okay? And hopefully, my prayer is through all these past messages, I want you guys to get this picture, okay? Whether you're new in the faith, whether you're old in the faith, whether you are working and struggling and being sanctified by God in the faith, we're all one family under God. If you put your trust and your hope and your faith in him, we're all one family in Jesus Christ. In this family, we're called to keep each other accountable as we press towards the finish line, the race that God has in store for us, and so I hope, I hope that as we walk into the membership meeting later on today, okay, most of you guys will be grandfathered in, you know, <laughs> as you guys are there. But uh, I hope that we would do life together as God's family, that we would that we would spur each other on towards love and good deeds, that we would encourage each other to grow in our service, grow in our righteousness, grow in our disciplines. So I got one last message to kind of wrap up the whole entire uh, picture here. This last message is the relationship that we are to cultivate, the rhythms of relationship that we are to cultivate with the world around us. And that's the reality of what Advent is about. That God in his divinity steps down into humanity to redeem a world who did not know him, to bring light into darkness, to go into a place that did not know God and actually bring this good news and bring Death to life. Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune God, steps down from heaven to be part of us, to be one of us, to be obedient, even obedient unto death. So that you and I can have a relationship with the Father. So my hope is this, is that we leave with the reminder of the importance of what it means to live a life committed to speaking this good news out to the world around us. That this news cannot just be simply kept here. That this good news cannot be simply localized in this body that we can't just powwow each other for here and on. But we are called to step out into the world to bring this news to the world around us. So I'll start by reading this, uh, this snippet of a letter that was part of a broader story. I read this a long time ago. Uh, actually, when I, uh, when I did read it, I was thinking about my best friend at that time. But the story is about a woman uh, who fell asleep and she had a dream, a vision, that she received a message from a messenger from hell, Okay. She received a message from a friend of hers who gave it to a messenger who gave it to her in this dream. And this is the letter that her friend wrote to her from hell. Let me read it to you. It says this My friend, I stand in judgment now, and I fear that you're to blame somehow. On earth, I walked with you day by day, and never did you point to me the way. You knew the Lord in truth and glory. But never did you tell the story. My knowledge then was very dim. You could have led me safely to him. And though we lived together on the earth, you never told me of the second birth. And now I stand this day condemned because you failed to mention him. You taught me many things, that's true. I called you friend and I trusted you. But I learn now that it's too late for you could have kept me from this fate. We walked by day and we talked by night, and yet you showed me not the light. You let me live and love and die. You knew I'd never live on high. Yes, I called you a friend in life and trusted you through joy and strife. And yet on coming to, these, to this end, I cannot now call you my friend. Right. If Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and that's the that's the number one question we have to wrestle with. If Jesus Christ is who he says he is, if he is the one who lived and died and resurrected and in that life, death, and resurrection validating the claim of who he is, the son of God, the savior of the world, and in his life, death, and resurrection validating who he says we are, sinners in need of salvation, who cannot find their way, who are searching and yearning, tired over and over. If his life and death and resurrection is true, it validates that he is the life, the way, and the truth. That there is no way to the Father but through him. If Jesus is who he says he is, listen guys, then the only thing that we must do in response to him is this. Is either to reject him and to walk away or is to bow down and worship him and bring as many people as possible to know him. If Jesus is who he says he is. And that's that's the question you have to ask yourself. Right? Don't ask yourself how great the church is. Don't ask yourself about the community, the life. Don't ask about these things. The question you have to ask is, is Jesus Christ who he says he is? A lot of you guys are smart. I've seen you guys do your research on topics that you really love. I see you do the deep dive into the internet about things. you find things that no one else in the world can find because that's how deep you will go for the subject that you love. And yet here's the most important question, the question of whether this man is truly the son of God, whether this man is truly the way, the truth, and the life, and whether this man is truly the savior of my soul. And if he is truly all those things, then you have an actual response you have to give. Either you reject him, and by not doing anything, by the way, is rejection. Or you bow down, you worship him, and you bring as many people to know him as possible. It's actually the most loving thing you can do. Right? The most loving thing you can do, if you know that this is true, is to share and plead for the souls of those who do not know him. And let me tell you this, it's actually almost immoral. It's, I watch your feeds. I see what you guys pose, and I, and I see the empathy, the love that you have for the world around you. I see the, the need and the wanting to fight for justice. I see your, your, your response to, uh, to poverty. I see your response to, to pain. I see these things, and I say, my church is a very empathetic church. My church loves people. My church understands that there needs to be something to be done right. You understand this, but it's almost immoral for you to stay quiet if you have the cure for, this, for the soul of humanity, Right? Wouldn't it be immoral if you had the cure for cancer and someone you love is suffering from cancer, your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband or your wife, your neighbor. If you have the cure for cancer and you refuse to give it to them but you decide to yourself, I'm going to keep this cure to myself, it is the most immoral thing you can possibly do. And you know what's funny though is that our culture prides itself in this morality, Right? We live in a culture that tells us how moral we ought to be, how caring we ought to be towards people, and yet you who know that this is true, that Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, you keep your mouth quiet and decide not to share. How much more immoral is it for you to know the way of salvation for the souls of the world and keep it for yourself? To be indifferent towards. That's, that's even the worst part. It's not even about being scared. It's when you become indifferent. Like I don't even want to share it. And that's the thing we don't want to talk to us today. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. The scripture today tells us anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the good news. Isn't that great? The scripture tells us anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the question that must be asked is, how can they call upon the name of Jesus, then, Tony? And that's the question I want to get us to answer today. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, when you read from 9 to 15. How can they call upon the name of Jesus if all those who call upon the Lord will be saved? And how can they call upon his name, Tony? How can they do it? First, we're going to read verse nine to ten, and the answer is very simple: they have to believe this message. They have to believe the message. Verse nine to ten. Look at verse uh, nine: that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess. And are saved. How can they call upon the name of Jesus? Is they must believe this body of truth that's been given. This message, this truth that has been laid out. How can they call upon his name? They have to believe in this message. And what is it that they must confess and believe in? What is it that they must confess and believe in? Two truths. One. The truth that must be known is this that Jesus is Lord. The truth of his personhood. Who is Jesus? Is he a guru? Is he a teacher? Is he a nice guy? Is he a friend? Is he a philosopher? Paul says what? Jesus is Lord. The Greek word here is the word kurios, which is the Hebrew Greek translation for the word Yahweh. Right? The, the the Old Testament Greek translation for the word Yahweh. They use the word kurios. And so when Paul uses this word, what he is saying is this, that Jesus was not only to claim his deity, but to claim that he was supreme authority over the world. Because the word Yahweh, right, it means I am that I am. There is none like me. There is nobody like me. I can't compare myself to anyone. How can they call upon him Jesus? They must believe this message. And what does this message say? Jesus is Lord. He is supreme over all things. Over life, over death. Heavens and earth, he is supreme over all nature, over all reality. That's how you begin to believe. Do you know that? Is Jesus Lord? Secondly, not just his person, but his work. What did he do? What did this Lord do? He was raised from the dead. That his life, his death, and his resurrection came to free us from the sin in which we are caught up in. The sin that is that has has destroyed us and the sin that is going to kill us. And here's the thing, you cannot simply believe, you can't simply be saved by saying, I believe in God, I believe in the higher power. There's this truth that must be known. How can they call upon the of Jesus? They must believe this truth and this message that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he has come to die for the sins of the world. He has come to die for my sins and your sins. The hymn writer, Horatius Boner, this is what he said, upon a life I did not live, and upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, on this I stake my whole eternity. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, upon another man's life, on this I stake everything. This is how you begin to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. How can you be saved? You got to call upon the name. What must you confess? That he is Lord. That he is. His life, his death, his resurrection came. That he came and freed us from our sins. The key here is this, let me tell you guys, the key here as we talk about this, the key as we explain that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he lived, he died, he resurrected. The key here, the key element here is that there's a persuasion involved. There's a persuasion because you can't just tell them that Jesus Christ is Lord. You have to persuade someone. You have to help them understand what they're hearing. You have to get them to grasp this idea, grasp this reality that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ has done what he said he has done. Okay, people come to God in two ways usually. They come through power or they come through persuasion. One of those doors. Eventually they meet both doors, but they go through one of those doors. When I first came to know the Lord Jesus, I came through power. It was a supernatural work that God did upon my life. And it made me just, I didn't know who he was. I barely understood anything about him. But what I didn't know was this, there must be him. He must be it. And it was later on when I began to ask a bunch of questions then I need to be persuaded of this truth. I need to be reaffirmed by this truth. Sometimes the power, the power, pe- the people come to Christ through power, like for example, they have a supernatural experience. They meet God they had a vision. They get healed of something and they know it's unbelievable. They, they know it ca- cannot be possible by human hands. Something supernatural happened in their life and it led them to a place where they give their life to God. That's one. Another way they come to God is through persuasion. Persuasion. They have a bunch of objections about God. They have a bunch of issues that they don't know. Things that they can't answer. Things that they just kind of can't wrap their mind around. And they take up this cumulative process. They, they need the evidence. And they, cum- they, they, they gather this cumulative case to answer their objections. And eventually they come to a place when they said, okay, it's either I reject or I, I, I receive. There's no other way around it. A very famous person that did this, a very famous journalist that did this, he wrote a bunch of books out of it. was uh, Lee Strobel, for Case for Christ. His wife came to know God and he just he their family was atheist. He didn't like it, he didn't like the idea of raising his daughter to know Jesus. And so he went out and he went to search. He took all his journalistic skills that he ever acquired and he went out and he trying to figure a case to deny Jesus Christ. And the more he looked, the more he journeyed, the more he spoke, the more he interviewed, the more he talked, he came to this cumulative case in his heart where it's finally this it's either I reject or I receive. In the end, he just said, Okay. I give up. You win, God. And it was later that the power of the Holy Spirit began to work in his life. Either you come through power or persuasion, and this is the first thing that we must realize as we ask the question how can people call on the name of Jesus? They can't call on his name unless they actually believe and confess it. What is it that they must confess and believe in? Jesus Christ is Lord. That he lived, he died, he resurrected for the sins of the world. But it's not just a truth to be known. It's a truth that must be believed. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? For it is with your heart that you believe, the Bible says. We are to trust this. Not only are we saying, oh, I know this. But we are to trust this and throw our whole entire lot into it. It's like this. For example, if you're on an airplane that's going down. And you know it's going down. And if you just know that the parachute can save you, you're still going to die. You guys follow? You, you can stand there. The, the, the students can tell you, um, do you know what you're holding? Yeah, yeah, it's the parachute. If I put it on, I'll, I'll be saved. Okay? Put it on. Yeah, yeah, I know that if I pull this string, after I jump out for about 15 seconds, the, the thing comes out and, whew, and then I'll be saved. I'm glad you know it. Put it on. Yeah, no. But you will, I'm glad you understand the mechanics of this. I'm glad you understand how this all works. But the question and the reality is unless you actually put it on, you're not going to be saved. And it's the same way when it comes to Jesus Christ. So it's not just about knowing who he is, knowing what he's done. You have to do what? You have to throw your lot in. It's a truth that must be grasped, that must take hold of you. It's a truth that must change you so much that it results in an action in your life. You can't just go around all the time, and i I, sorry to say, guys, sometimes I hear this so much in our church. You can't just go around all the time and just say, I know, Tony, I know, PT, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I know that Jesus Christ is good for me. I know that Jesus Christ died for me. I know the mechanics of it. I know this information. Then put it on. Then do something about it. Throw your lie in with him. Surrender the trust. Surrender your heart. Surrender your efforts in with him. Transfer your complete obedience over to him. Stop saying, I know And start doing it. Start obeying. Right? How can they call upon the name of the Lord? How can they call upon the name of the Lord? They must have a message that they believe in. And what is this message? Jesus Christ is Lord. What did he do? He lived, he died, he resurrected for the sin of the world. And I give my life to this truth. I surrender my entirety to this truth. I surrender my whole being to this reality. There must be a change, guys. But the question is, who is this message for? Who is it for? Is it for the holier-than-thou's? Is it for the, whole, the religious ones? Look at verse 11 to 12. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord over all and richly blesses all who call upon him. Right? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone and everyone, religious or non-religious. Jesus Christ, let me tell you guys. Jesus Christ, and I, I think a lot of us, we have this kind of false mentality. That Jesus is only for the religious church people. That Jesus is only for those who are like, you know, do all the spiritual things around us. That Jesus, do you know who He wasn't for in this? You know who Paul was arguing about? He's saying, you know who the religious people are here? The Jews. They had every information about Jesus Christ. They had everything about who God is, and yet they were the ones who had the blessing, the promise, the truth, all of that, and they rejected God. When he came, do you know who received them? Those who had nothing, the Gentiles, those who did not, bea- who barely understood, and yet they received him. They took this truth, they, they 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 let it saturate them and change them. No, it's not the religious people. It's actually the religious people. This guy, this it's the religious people that God is mostly against, because the religious people sometimes you have this mentality that God owes you because you did something spiritual for him. Right, and so, and so you're not relying upon your God for your salvation. You're thinking God owes me my salvation because I did something good for Him. And God says, "Nope, that's not it. My church is not for the religious. My church is for those who recognize they cannot save themselves." Right? That's why Christians Christians aren't supposed to be religious, and some Christians probably aren't at one point looked that very religious either, right? Because Christians understand this. Christians understand we don't just repent for the bad things we do. Everyone that repents for the bad things you do, right? Christians also repent for the good things that they do. So what do you mean? I I just helped the lady cross the, the road uh, right now. You should repent. What? I just helped feed the homeless, you know, down the street at the homeless shelter. You should repent. What? You crossed the street with a homeless lady, you took a picture, did my Sunday service today for the Lord, right? Feeling good about it, right? Fed 3,000 people, yet the picture, look at all these people we help feed, right? Got to announce it to the world, mm, right? Christians repent for the good things they do too, you know why? Because they know that even the good things that they do, they do it for a selfish bent. They do it for it because it made me feel good. They do it because it it... it, it It somehow uh, made me feel like I'm I'm, I'm a better person. See, Jesus didn't die for a better person. Jesus died for someone who knew that could not be saved. And they need a savior. Who is this message for? Who is this truth for? It's not for the holy than thou's. Not those who got it together. This message is for everyone. Because everyone, rich or poor. White collar, blue collar, smart or dumb, religious, non-religious, straight or gay. Everyone is on a falling plane. And, only, and the only one that can save them is Jesus Christ. How can they call upon the name of God to be saved, Tony? They have to believe in this message. That Jesus Christ is Lord of this whole entire world. That instead of being Lord of the universe, he came down in a manger. He grew up in a small area in the the middle of nowhere. He lived and died for the sins of the people. And he resurrected to validate his claim that I am Savior of this world. Now throw your lot in there. But here's the second thing. How can... How can they call upon the name of Jesus? How can they believe if they've never heard? Look at verse 14. How then can they call upon the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? This message has to be preached. Someone has to come and give them this message. The only way that they can be saved, the only way that we can be saved, is that we have this message, this belief, this truth. And the only way that we can have this truth is that somebody must go and share this truth. This truth must be preached. It must be communicated. The Bible, the word here for preach in the Greek, is, it, the, the word is the word herald. It's like a messenger going into the cities, going into the neighborhood, proclaiming. It's like the newsletter that you get telling us what's going on, what's happening, right? I'll try to make a more Gen Z illustration here, okay? I just learned it this week. I was, rec- I was corrected by our youth group kids, but I, I, I just learned it. There's this thing called a soft launch. You guys heard about that? Oh, I just learned about this this week. It's a soft launch versus a hard launch. Some of you guys were like, what? Like, what, what are we launching? Like, let me tell you, right? A so- soft launch is like this launching word is meant to be like when you're, you're in a relationship, right? Soft launch is when you want people to not really know, like kind of get the hint that you might be in a relationship. Hard launch is like, like, you know, the Xers when they say, I'm in a relationship with so-and-so, Facebook, profile status. Boom. That's a hard launch. Right? Everyone knows exactly who it is. They know what's going on. Boom. That's a hard launch. A soft launch is this. You take a picture of their shadow with you. And you post it. That's a soft launch. Like, who is the shadow? I don't know. A soft launch is this. A soft launch is like you take a picture of an extra pair of shoes sitting next to you at the park. Right? Whose shoes are those? Right? It's supposed to create some sort of intrigue. Some sort of news. It's like you're announcing something but you're not really announcing it. right? But you're you're definitely announcing it. right. You know what you just did? You just heralded a good news. right. You, You herald, I'm in a relationship. That's what you herald. In the same way, when you talk about Jesus, you herald the same thing. I'm in a relationship with the Lord and Savior of the world. There is a king of heaven who came who died for my sins, who have given me eternal life, who has given me the second birth, who has given me a hope eternal. This is a relationship that I am in and you herald that relationship so that those who can hear it might believe. There must be somebody to preach. The word preach here is not localized to this pulpit here. It's not what you understand as preachers in terms of he's preaching, he's heralding it in the sermon on the pulpit. The word preach here is is that you are going into the streets, into the neighborhoods where everyone can hear the good news. Into your social media feeds, into your church, right? Into your schools, into your neighborhoods, with your friends. The primary mold for this good news is you. So when the question is how can they call on the one... To save them, well, they how can they how how can everyone be saved? They have to call on the one. How can they call on him? You have to believe in him to call on him. How can they believe in him? Somebody got to preach it to them. Someone got to herald it to them. Someone got to soft launch or hard launch it to them, right? Someone's got to tell them who this relationship is. And that person, guess what, is you. It's you. How can you say? That I have this amazing, beautiful, life-giving, eternal, hopeful, peaceful relationship and not say anything about it. How can you not preach and share the message of hope, of life? We who are the most moral generation, sort of, do you not feel a sense of obligation, that if you know this, isn't it immoral not to say anything about it? But let's say, let's say, let's say, well, I don't really know how to say much of it. Let Let me do a plug real fast. We have this thing called FOMO here at our church, okay? You don't go to FOMO to like, you know, rack up your resume of how many people you witness to, Okay. You go to FOMO to preach the gospel, and if you don't know, follow them. Follow those who are practiced. Follow those who are doing it. Learn from them. Just watch them. Pray with them. Listen to them. I had a I had one of the moms in the youth group who went with the who went to one of the FOMO meetings, right? And she didn't do anything. She just wa- she just followed the the guys. I think she followed home around, and she was listening to him. And She was like, "Huh. I didn't know that he was that smart, right? <laughs> and then two, right? Like." I didn't know that that argument could be made. That was good. Right? As he's preaching, as he's sharing, as he's proclaiming, as he's heralding the good news, she's learning. If you say, yeah, I don't know much of it, I don't understand it fully, then come and learn. That's why we have the church. That's why we have members here who do these things so that you can come along and walk with them. The only, the only issue is this. If you don't know it, there's an opportunity. But if you do know it and you don't do it, There's something terribly wrong with you. But how can they be preached? How can they preach? Verse 15. But how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So here's... The person, how can they believe this message? Well, somebody got to preach it to them. Well, how can they preach the message? Well, somebody got to send them. Somebody got to send them. Sent here refers to the way Christ, through his church, sends out missionaries, sends out preachers, day-to-day Christians, out into the streets, out into the world, to all places, to messengers of this word. Jesus may send you to the pulpit. Jesus may send you overseas. Jesus may send you to your Cubicle next to your coworker. Jesus may send you to the classroom next to your uh, friend and, and, and your schoolmates. Jesus may send you to your street to your neighbors. But He sends us. The church sends us to preach this good news. It is our new, is our feet that brings the good news here. Did you guys know? And this is not this is not to say that this is what makes Christianity right, but at least it tells you that there's something special, and unique about Christianity. Did you know that all the major religions? Their, their central, their, at least the area of influence is always where they are founded. The most, most major religions, their faith is always localized to one area, right? Like, for example, Buddhism is mostly localized to where? What do you think? A- India, Asia, right? Islam is mostly localized to where? Middle East, North, North Africa, okay? Where do you think Christianity is localized? Everywhere. North America, South America, Africa, Europe, Asia. The Christian faith is spread throughout the nation. Now, am I saying that that's right yet? No, that doesn't make it right. Okay? Only Jesus Christ makes it right. What I am saying is, whatever is going on, this message has power. This is how you, the only place that is not entered is this location from like kind of like China-ish over to Close to where the military—they call it a 1040 window. Missionaries call it a 1040 window. This is the last stronghold for Christians, right? This is the last castle we have to beat, right? We beat this place. We're going home. Jesus is coming back. Okay, I'm I'm serious. 1040 window. We get that place. Everything is done. It's, last, it's Satan's last stand. The gospel just needs to move through there. It's everywhere. Why? Because there's something about this message that has power. You know why it has power? Because it's true. It changes people. It transforms lives. It awakens the soul. It feeds. It completes. There's a power to this message that is not just found in localized areas, but it is found all over. Because wherever this message is preached, the power of God goes with it. See, wherever God's people are sent, they preach the message. And wherever the message is preached, people believe the message. They believe this truth. They give their life to this truth. And they go on and they get sent. And they preach. And people believe. Notice what Paul is trying to teach us here about evangelism. Notice what Paul is trying to teach us here about the relationship that we have to have with a world that does not know God. One, it's absolutely necessary. Evangelism is not a side option for your life. Evangelism is not for those who you say is more gifted or more has the ability for evangelism. It's for everyone. You are called to preach the good news. How can they believe without someone preaching to them? Evangelism, what Paul is teaching, is it requires a willingness to speak out, not to stay quiet, not to stay passive, not, not to see a dying world and look at it and just turn the other way. It requires you to speak out. You have to say something. You have to say something. It requires not just a proclamation, but persuasion. You can't just, and it's not just about saying something, but it's about really articulating it, getting them to understand—not just, I mean, not just throwing it in their faces. Like okay, I'm done with you, but helping the person understand the importance of what they just heard, persuading them of the reality of it. Some of us, I get it—you don't like the faith, you don't like Christianity, you want to do Christianity 2.0, you want to do this progressive thing, you want to deconstruct your faith and do this whole new process, whatever it is. Deconstruction of your Christian faith, by the way, this is a new trend going out. It is not Christian anymore. Deconstruction of Christian faith is basically saying, I want Christianity my way, which is a way of saying, I just want to do things my way. This persuasion is to say, This is who God is, this is who you are. Little by little, day by day, engaging them. It requires a truth message, a real message. Because you can do all these things with everything else, but unless the message has power, it won't go anywhere. But if you have a message that has power, what should we do? Jesus Christ, Lord of the world, live, die, resurrected to validate that claim, to die for your sin, that if you believe in him, you will not face eternity in hell, but have everlasting life. We have a message of hope, a power, that if you would proclaim it, it would change. So let me end it one more time. The question we started off with. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how can they call upon the name of Jesus? How can they? They got to believe the message. Well, how can they believe the message? Somebody got to go preach it to them. Who's going to go preach it to them? Those who are sent. That's how they're going to get it. That's the relationship you have. To this world, just as Christ had to this world. He saw a dying world and he loved them so deeply that he would send his only son to do whatever it takes to bring them home. If our Lord and Savior would go to the cross for that, how much more do you think you ought to do? The least you can do is to preach it. The least you can do is to contend for a soul for it. The least you can do is to go 12 rounds with Satan for the souls of your friend at least. The 12 rounds to contend with Satan for the soul of your brother or your sister at least. To contend. To plead. Let me read this letter to you one more time. When I read this a long time ago... I remember after I read it, I wrote a, I, I, had, I got into a habit every New Year's. I write, a, I write a letter to Min, my best friend. Same letter, written different words, but same message, right. And usually I tell them this, is I love you. My kids call you uncle, right. You're my ride and die, right. And I don't want, I don't want to be in heaven without you. Right, love you. I believe in this with all my heart. And because I believe in it, I know what will happen if you do not know him. So just like every new year, I write to you, please, know Jesus this year. He hasn't agreed yet, but one day I think he will. All right. But it was from this letter. So let me read it to you one more time. Imagine this is your friend. Someone you love speaking to you from the depths of hell. My friend, I stand in judgment now. And I feel that you're to blame somehow. On earth I walk with you day by day. And never once did you point to me the way. You knew the Lord in truth and glory. But you never told me his story. My knowledge then was very dim. You could have led me safely to him. And though we lived together on this earth, you never told me of the second birth. And now I stand this day condemned because you failed to mention him. You taught me many things. That's true. I called you friend and I trusted you. But I learned now that it's too late. You could have kept me from this fate. We walked by day and we talked by night, and yet you showed me not the light. You let me live and love and die. You knew I'd never live on high. Yes, I called you a friend in life and trusted you through my joy and strife. And yet on coming to this end, I cannot now call you my friend. If you truly believe who Jesus Christ says he is. And the relationship you ought to have to the world around you. The greatest thing you can do for your friend. The greatest thing you can do for your neighbor. The greatest thing you can do for those around you is to plead with them. To go 12 rounds with them. To contend with them. As Charles Spurgeon said, and I'll end with this quote. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Oh, church, I pray. I pray that the rhythms of the relationships and all that we do aren't just for the sake of being religious. It is because the Lord of this universe has captured your soul, has breathed into you a life that's everlasting, and there is no other response you have now but to contend to contend for all those he has brought before you. Let's pray.